Good morning. If you were here with me two weeks ago in our series, The Storyteller, you may remember how we looked at a parable Jesus told about how we manage the resources that God pours out on us, how we use our money. Today's parable seems to touch on the same issue, and I suspect I was again picked to talk to you about how you use your money because someone thinks I have to make up for the 35 years I spent as a banker. <laughs> Pastor Nick, Pastor Mark, is it so? <laughs> but today, rather than tell the story of the parable, let's, let's look instead at the characters of the parable. Because we've got some cultural distance here to cover. We've got some time travel to make, so to speak. So we will look first at three characters in today's passage from Luke 16, 19 through 31. You may want to grab your Bibles or the Pew Bible, jot some notes in your service folder. But then, because this parable talks about a concept, a reality, our society seems to have a problem with, I'm going to take some time with that this morning as well. So characters first, and then we'll look at what might just be the elephant in the room. Well, let's pray first. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you, you told stories to reveal to us where our hearts really lie. So this morning we ask you and your spirit to be at work among us, telling us the story that we need to hear for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So characters first. Character number one. The rich man. Now, as a banker, I got to meet my share of rich people. Some of them, you could tell, had a lot of money. Their watches showed it. Their leathers showed it. Their cars and their homes showed it. They wanted you to notice. But you can't always judge, right? Some of them were rich and only wanted to get richer. Some of them were up to their neck in debt. And a few were generous beyond belief. Still, it was pretty clear that their identity was wrapped up in their wealth since they displayed it, just like the guy in this parable. So what kind of guy is he? Well, the first thing that Jesus tells us in the story, verse 19, is well, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen. What is this, some kind of red carpet commentary? And given that it sometimes means to wear purple today, you might think he should be wearing a red hat, too. <laughs> well, he was choosing, choosing to wear purple, but only because purple made a financial statement rather than a fashion statement. You see, purple cloth in Jesus' day was the most expensive. Only the richest of the rich could afford it, and he wore it each and every day. And here's another clue from verse 19. He eats a sumptuous feast every day. Did you catch that? Every day. A feast means he needs a huge staff. And so while he can take it easy on the Sabbath, everybody who works for him can't keep Sabbath. They work a long day, milling grain, dressing meat, churning butter, tending the fire. But he blithely ignores actually one of the most important issues of his day, that the community would all keep the Sabbath 
perfectly. And finally, there's one more thing to notice. Right outside the rich man's door, right outside, there's a poor beggar full of sores longing for just the scraps from this guy's table. Maybe this rich guy didn't know, or at least he didn't notice. Or maybe there were so many beggars that he couldn't keep track of them all, had compassion fatigue. But later in the parable, in verse 24, the rich man dies, but he still thinks he's a winner. From hell, he looks up to heaven and says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He wants Lazarus to put his finger in his mouth. I sure hope all those sores are really gone, right? But did you catch what he said? He said, send Lazarus. Not only does he recognize Lazarus as the guy from outside his gate, he knows his name. There are no excuses for this guy. He loves himself. He covers himself in purple every day. And he's not really keeping the great commandments about loving God and loving others. The successful winners of this world are often ready to stuff life's losers in the garbage. Character number two, Lazarus, the beggar. And the first thing that we should know is this beggar has a name, Lazarus. And in fact, he is the only character in all of the parables of Jesus that does have a name. Oh, we've got the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, the good shepherd, but none of them have a real name. But Lazarus does. I think there are two reasons that Jesus does this. One I'll tell you now, the other I'll tell you later. Lazarus means the one whom God helps. Now that's just a little ironic, isn't it? He's a beggar, so sick that others have to carry him each day to the gate where he barely survives hungry oozing sores. No way does it seem like God is helping. But quickly in the story, he's carried by angels to Abraham's side, to heaven. There, Lazarus, every day, is finding great comfort for all of eternity. He is the one who God helps in the end. But it's not just in the end that God sends his help. Almost everyone else in the parable tries to help Lazarus too. The people in his village know the best chance for helping Lazarus is this rich man. And so they lay him at his gate every day. The dogs come to lick his wounds. Now this probably isn't the grandkids' cocker spaniels. They're probably Dobermans, guard dogs. The ones who are getting the scraps from the table. But instead of attacking him, these guard dogs, even they are doing something for him. They are cleaning his wounds. Now, we don't even recommend that as a folk remedy today, but even the dogs are doing their best to help Lazarus. And when death finally comes, this man too poor for a funeral, angels carry him 
to the heavenly feast, to sit at Abraham's side, probably the best seat in the house. Who's got the fine linen now? And now it's the rich man needing God's help, asking for Lazarus to (laughs) come cool my tongue, as if Lazarus was still a commodity that he could be used. And who would blame Lazarus at this part of the story if he had shouted, seriously? All those years I sat there and never once did you walk 20 feet to give me a drink? Rot in hell forever. Yet, even in heaven, like on earth, Lazarus doesn't complain. Instead, Abraham speaks up. You know, rich man, Those who would pass from here to you cannot cross. Who is Abraham referring to? Who is it that Abraham knew would be willing to pass over the great chasm? We don't know for sure, but perhaps Abraham is reminding Lazarus he shouldn't volunteer. Character three, and it's not Abraham. We're talking about the people who are on the receiving end of Jesus' parable. The Pharisees, who Luke says in verse 14, dearly loved their money. (laughs) Great phrase. The privileged Pharisees, who had openly scorned what Jesus was teaching. See, Jesus was saying that everything that we have is really God's. Nobody really owns anything. It's not my crops and barns. It's not my purple linens and banquets. It's not my home or my car. We only manage it while we were alive. So Jesus confronts them with this parable, with this question, do you manage all of God's possessions for him or for yourself? Which master do you serve? And that question has left hanging in the air for the Pharisees. What will they do with that question? What will they do with the one who asked it? Oh, and it hangs in the air for us this morning, too. There's something else that's hanging in the air from this story, and that's the question of hell. You've heard it said, I'm sure. How can there be both a good God and hell? How can God be loving and still send sincere people to hell? And it isn't just those who question Christianity. There may be even some of you here in this room today who have a problem with hell as punishment. The rich man died and went to hell. Is Jesus saying that hell is real, or is this just good for the story? This is a major issue, so I want to spend some time with you on it this morning. Because you cannot understand your heart, and you cannot truly understand God's heart, unless you understand what the Bible and Jesus teach about hell. I'll say it again. If you do not understand what the Bible teaches about hell... You cannot understand your heart or the heart of God. So what does Jesus teach about hell? Let's go back to the rich man. And yes, 
he would have identified as rich. He had such wealth, he had it within his grasp, and he wore it on his back. It meant everything. He had his feasts, and he was satisfied. Do you know what sin is? The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. Sin, sin is finding our sense of identity in anything other than God. It's when we put our sense of hope and safety in anything but God. With it, we have everything. And without it, we're lost. We're nothing. Jesus should be that thing. Our relationship with him. If I have Jesus, then like Lazarus, I can have nothing and still turn out okay. But if I do lose Jesus, even if I have the whole world, even if I'm sitting on top of the world, then I really have nothing. That's what the Bible reveals to us. That's how life really works. But for all of us, all sinful human beings, we put other things in his place. We find our identity in our career and our abilities. And, and until one day, the job's gone because, because someone outmaneuvered us. Or our identity is wrapped up in our relationships as a spouse or parent. And suddenly that relationship is gone or falls apart. And I'm lost. Or we find our identity in what satisfies us, like the rich man in the parable. And suddenly, you're dead. It's an addiction. And if you're a human, you're addicted to who you think you are. You're addicted to being a self-made person. And like addictions, it leads to all the same problems. We disintegrate. We can't hold it together. To do so, we need more and more just to get the same high, to get the same feeling of security, of peace, of happiness. We isolate ourselves so we don't have to hear the truth. And we lie to ourselves about what is really happening. We all have that thing that we're addicted to. It's just that some of them are more acceptable than others. If you're addicted to drugs, you're an addict. But if you're addicted to your career, you're ambitious. If you're addicted to money, you're successful. So the rich man needs more and more to feel good. He cares more about himself than the people that are around him, including the beggar at his gate. And even Abraham cannot help him see his problem. Abraham, who should have called him, you fool! Abraham, who instead calls him my son, even Abraham cannot help him see his problem. So what does this have to do with hell? Remember, as Christians, we believe we live forever. We go on forever, which means if something doesn't change, our addiction will last forever too. Now, if I have a small problem in earthly life, in the beginning days and weeks, it's hardly noticeable. I get away with it. But give it months and years, it can wreak havoc in our lives. Now, magnify that in the scope of eternity. A life of 80 or so years, 
Things may not look too bad, but to let it go on forever? (laughs) What destruction will there be then? Hear how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, Because my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will probably not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Lewis suggests that you may even know where this addiction is leading, and you wish you could stop it, but you can no longer do so. There is no you left. Just this machine of anger and jealousy going on and on forever. He says it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In every one of us, there is something growing, which will be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. In other words, the doors of hell are locked, but they're locked from the inside. God does not send people to hell. They choose to go there. God does not create hell. We create it with our desires, our denial. Here's what I'm saying. When we base our lives and our identity on something other than God, when we base our lives on our desires, our wants, our pleasures, the good life that we think we're living here is now really the hell we'll be living in. Maybe the good life you're living is just the hell you're building. Did you notice how the rich man in the story does not ask to be let out of hell? He is perfectly content to stay there. As long as he can get Lazarus to join him and to take care of him. So when people question why a loving God would send people to hell, they don't understand what hell really is. But if what people are really asking is why doesn't God do something so people don't have to go to hell in the first place? Doesn't that mean that God should forgive? Doesn't that mean wiping out all sin and giving people a fresh start? But that's what he's already done through Jesus on the cross at Calvary at great cost. But if people who question hell are really just saying God should leave them alone, I'm afraid that's what he's really doing. For there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. So the question remains for the Pharisees, for me, for you, is our identity in anything other than in Jesus and the identity that he has for us. Are you so wrapped up in living your life that you're missing the beggar at the door? Which master do you really serve? Can you, like Lazarus, really be at peace no matter how bad things look now? Because with Jesus, you do have everything, both now and forever. 
One last thing. The doctrine of hell also teaches us about the heart of God. Did you notice at the end of the parable, the rich man asks for Lazarus to come back from the dead so he could go warn his brothers. But Abraham says to him, even, even that won't really help. For if the only reason they change is because they fear what's coming if they don't, that's just another selfish focus, isn't it? Not only do we seek pleasure, but we work to avoid punishment. It's the same addiction. Besides, Abraham says his brothers have all they need. They have Moses and the prophets. They have God's word, which means they already have the one thing that can break their addiction, that can keep us from the hell of our own making. They have God's love. Listen to this from Moses and the prophets talking about Jesus. He was hated. He was rejected by people. He had much pain and suffering. People would not even look at him. He was hated and we didn't even notice. But he took our suffering and he felt our pain for us. We saw his suffering and thought God was punishing him. But he was wounded for the wrong we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him. And we are healed because of his wounds. Here's why understanding hell helps us understand the love of God because he took on hell for us. That's how much he loves you. When somebody tells you God cannot be loving if there's a hell, tell them that it's precisely because of hell that you know how much God loves you. If there is no hell, what does it cost God to love you? Nothing. But if there is a hell, one that we've created for ourselves, and God takes that on, that hell on for us, then he really is a God of incredible love. I wonder here at the end of the story if Jesus' heart is breaking. When he finishes telling the parable to the Pharisees, there at the end he's talking about the rich man's brothers, but he's really talking to the Pharisees. He's saying, if you won't listen to Moses and the prophets, will you be convinced even if someone like Lazarus rises from the dead. And perhaps here is why Lazarus has a name in the parable. Because in a few days, maybe even just a few hours, Jesus will make one more dramatic attempt to break through to the Pharisees. One more miracle in the hope that they will see their sin, their addiction, their identity wrapped up in something other than God. One more chance for his love to break through because Jesus will step to the end of a tomb wherein lies a dead Lazarus and he will bring him to life. Will they connect the dots? Will they remember this story? Will they see that God indeed sent Lazarus back from the dead so that they might truly listen to Moses and the prophets and to the one 
they pointed to. Well, the proof of a living Lazarus turned their hearts to the God who loves them. But John eleven fifty three tells us the answer for most of the Pharisees, that instead of turning their hearts to God at the resurrection of Lazarus, they planned from that day on to kill him. What about you? Where is your heart? Jesus rose from the dead for you. Let his love break through. Amen.